Welcome to Kinsider. I'm Chris Peterson, and today we're chatting with Owen Grover, the CEO of True Fire Studios, an online music education company. I wanted to bring Owen on to learn about his company and how virtual learning will become even more prominent in our new world. From learning guitar with a legendary musician via True Fire Studios, to a masterclass with a famous chef, and yes, even your fourth grader's fall semester. Virtual learning is here to stay. Owen also has a rich background in media, spanning two decades with notable roles as the CEO of Pocket Cast, as well as the general manager and executive vice president of digital at iHeartMedia, where he was a key player in developing the overall digital strategy for the radio giant. It's also where Owen and I work together. So while the focus of this podcast was intended to learn about how technology is changing education, which we did, we also spent a lot of time discussing overall media trends, podcasts, TikTok, and even some hockey, which is about how our normal conversations go. I hope you enjoy. Owen, thanks for being here on Kinsider. It's great to be here. Thanks, Chris. You got it. So I want to cover a bunch of things with you today. First, I want to jump into what your current role is as CEO of True Fire Studios, which is an online music education company. Given the pandemic, a lot of people are seeing the shift from in-person education to online, and many schools and universities all around the world are actually starting right now virtually. So I thought it would be great to have you on to talk about the space as this isn't a new concept for your company. So what is True Fire Studios and what are you guys seeing right now during all of this craziness? Great. So Truefire Studios is the world's leading guitar instruction platform right now. But our goal is to become the largest platform for music education broadly across all major instrument groups with affordable anytime, anywhere lessons, a huge collection of uh, high quality video and learning tools. And one of our key goals is to support artists through substantial monetization opportunities through working with us, which is so important in this era right now, because as you know, there has been such a disruption to the day-to-day lives of music artists. They can't tour like they've been touring. Right. The environment around travel and around live events has just completely turned upside down. Our other goal is one that will be really familiar to you, which is to ensure that we deliver these educational experiences and content through a variety of platforms to be wherever the learner expects us to be, to borrow a phrase. (laughs) Again, as I mentioned earlier, rooted in guitar and stringed instrument, bass, banjo, mandolin, ukulele, but we're very aggressively growing and building to encompass all forms of music making, all different genres, uh, and, and a variety of instruments. Got it. How many people right now are learning stringed instruments on your platform? We reach roughly 3 million learners across a variety of platforms. We have an extraordinary reach on social and particularly on YouTube, where we have two separate channels, one for Truefire itself, one for one of the other companies in our portfolio, Jamplay. We also have communities on, as you would imagine, Facebook, Twitter, even TikTok. And then, of course, we have an extraordinary community of both instructors and learners who reach us through our first-party platforms, truefire.com, jamplay.com, and so on. Looking at it from the consumer side first, I want to go back to the artist portion in a minute. But if I'm someone that just wants to pick up guitar, I go to your website. Are these videos that are pre-made? Is it one-on-one? How is that working for the person trying to learn? 
We have a variety of ways that learners can interact with our content and a variety of business models to suit those different methods. On truefire.com, you can download a lesson. You can opt into a learning path. You can become an all-access subscriber that gives you access to thousands of pieces of content and hundreds of educators. We also have a product that I'm really proud of that we're investing heavily in called Channels, which allows an uh, instructor to set up basically their own standalone learning platform. And it's almost like a Patreon for music instructors. Hmm. And it allows them to create their own lessons, video content, host private lessons, do asynchronous lessons, learning plans, and so on. And we think building tools like that that allow artists to connect directly with learners is the future. That makes sense. If I'm an artist then, especially as you mentioned during this pandemic, is it just the simple, I want to start a channel, they can do it as YouTube would? Or what's the sort of onboarding or process for you guys to bring these artists in? We take a pretty high touch approach right now. We want to work directly with the artists to make sure they understand best practices since it's a new product. The idea is that we work really closely with many of our existing educators across our entire network. We help get them set up. We help them configure their channel. We help them talk about the cadence of not only content creation, but also how they promote it through their own either socials or sites and what have you. For us, it's really important that since it's a new product and it's a new way of thinking about this model or this entire universe, it's really important for us that we spend time with each one of those artists. We're actually devoting quite a bit of development and product energy into improving this product, listening to how learners are interacting with it, listening to how the educators are finding the tools. This is a huge focus for me. Yeah. Who's the average person taking lessons on the site? It really depends on, to a certain extent, the instructor. What I would say is for the TrueFire platform, it tends to appeal largely to intermediate and advanced learners. <laughs> Generally speaking, we're not competing with some of the song lesson stuff that you might see on a YouTube. It's really high value and we have a premium product. And as a result, we're able to command premium rates for the curriculum and the content, which is great. The Jamplay service, which is our sister service, as I mentioned earlier, has more uh, beginner to intermediate orientation. The channels themselves really depend on the artist that we've got award-winning jazz instructor, Frank Vignola, who's also a recording artist. That tends to be much more focused on pretty experienced players who are interested in jazz and blues. We have Robin Ford, who's an incredible guitar player on the rock and blues side as well. But again, each instructor brings their own vibe, their own audience, and their own flavor to this platform. Yeah. How many instructors are there on the platform? We have well over 350 instructors across our entire network. They range from metal to punk to jazz to blues to classic rock and everything in between. One of the things I'm really excited about is the opportunity to expand that palette to electronic music, to DJs and beat-driven stuff. And that's all you know, coming very shortly for us. When you expand into new instruments, are you going to be covering everything sooner than later? Or is it going to be sort of a systematic rollout? Let's hit the brass section next. Uh, yeah, and so it's, on. it's more systematic. I mean, there's certain things that we know we can do organically through our existing platforms, like bass, for example. We have bass lessons. We know we can build that out greatly. Or if we want to go deeper on a genre, say country, that's absolutely within our reach right now. So that's more organic. And there's some stuff that's going to be more driven through partnerships in M&A. And that would be stuff that looks a lot different, different instruments or compositional techniques and so on. 
but it's going to be a combination. And you know, the good news is this platform has such strength. It helps us a lot because in many ways, the artists that we work with are our best marketers because they can speak to the quality of our content, but also the quality of the people working in the company and the fact that we care so much about partnering with them meaningfully. And how has this whole pandemic with more people staying home, especially during summer vacation, how has that changed or possibly accelerated the business? You know, there's a lot of talk about COVID tailwinds, and we certainly saw that, particularly mm-hmm. at the back half of March into April and May. What I would say is that was a, a moment in time that we took maximum advantage of in terms of broadening our reach, extending the amount of marketing that we were doing, both in terms of top of funnel acquisition and in terms of just trying to reach out to folks who are in our network who maybe hadn't visited us in some time. And it was just unbelievable how much momentum we had at that moment in time. What I would say is we weren't alone. You know, so everybody right. from masterclass inside of this world to, to even smaller mom and pop, single practitioner instructors were taking advantage of this opportunity as well. As this summer has progressed, we've been thinking not only just about increasing spend to lean into the opportunity, but also thinking, how do we innovate our products and services to meet the moment? This isn't new for you guys. Truefire Studios has been around for quite a while. So the model's proven. Do you think that this is just the beginning as we see this push into online education outside of music, even into classrooms? Is this something that will remain maybe niche as far as like you guys focusing on music or as a broader opportunity? Is this now a proven model and anyone, any industry could do it and focus on virtual learning? I think you bring up a great point, which is that this is a business model that works. And it's really about our ability to command a position in the market that speaks to our premium content and you know the quality of our curriculum and so on. What I love about this business is music instruction, online music education is highly fragmented. There really isn't a market leader. And we see an opportunity to create a center of gravity in the space. That's one piece of it. The other piece of it is if you think about the traditional infrastructure that connected music fans, maybe amateur players and so on and so forth to the OEMs, manufacturing and so on, There was this, I mean, 20 years ago, pretty expansive print magazine business that just really doesn't exist the way it did before. Right. So these touch points that existed, these editorial content-driven touch points that would sit between OEMs, instrument manufacturers, retailers, and interested people, right, Mm -hmm. has just vanished. And we see an opportunity to play a role as a help meet sitting between highly, highly qualified, super engaged, passionate fans, whether it's guitar manufacturer, whether it's a piece of studio equipment, software, you name it. Where do you go to reach those people? We feel we can play a role. So not only helping the artists, but helping the instrument manufacturers and helping the software developers and so on. That role doesn't exist right now, right? And so that's an extraordinary opportunity. Now, the broader world of online education obviously is expanding. And the channels platform that I mentioned earlier could work for someone who wanted to do cooking lessons. So Mm -hmm. we're looking at that too. But what I would say is it's early days for us in terms of thinking about this strategy. And I'm very much focused on the ability to create a center of gravity specifically around online music education because there isn't a dominant market power right now. I want to talk about 
leadership. You joined True Fire Studios. I think the press announcement went out April 2nd. So interesting timing. You never do a press release on April 1st. So we waited until <laughs> April 2nd. Although, interestingly, digital media was full of interesting press releases on April 1st, which is usually not the case because people are like, is this a joke? Exactly. Yes, timing is everything, Chris. You're right. Yeah. Okay. So right after New York was in lockdown, you're signing on as CEO of this new company. I'm sure you haven't met the majority of your team. How has that been to be the chief executive and be remote? So the first thing I would say is I got lucky, which is that I got to go down to the headquarters, which is in St. Pete in mid-January. And I got to meet a, a substantial number of the folks in person in that visit for those couple of days. So that gave me a little bit of insight and FaceTime with those people, which was so critical. Obviously, I had been in close communication with the leadership of the business in the months preceding sure. my announcement. And you know, I was onboarding starting March. So I, I was definitely involved. Now, to your point, it's good news, bad news. The good news is I was not alone. Everybody in the company was coming to grips with this idea of working remotely. This is not a company that had, or a group of companies that had a remote heritage. They were largely focused around in-studio, in-office congregation. And so I was no different than anybody else trying to deal with this new normal. And we were heavy users of video conferencing, particularly in those early days, so that we could have FaceTime and get to know each other and feel each other out. Now, we all know that those are imperfect tools, Mm -hmm. but constant communication was the watchword. And with your team in St. Petersburg, I assume this was going to be part of the gig no matter what going into it is a lot of virtual meetings, right? That's right. And, you know, we also, to be clear, also have a team out in Colorado. We have staffers in, in Ohio. And so there was some degree of dispersion of the team. And obviously, as we grow and build, we expect that to be the case. But going back to one of the advantages is we didn't feel like we had to limit hiring of new staffers to those existing centers of gravity in St. Pete or Colorado, because we understood that travel was going to be impossible anyway, and no one was going into the offices. So it felt like it gave us a kind of freedom to be much more open in terms of who we might recruit, how we might think about staffing both senior and junior roles throughout the company. I want to shift gears, though, because I'd be remiss if we didn't chat media with you. And I want to spend some time on it because there's so much going on. Oh, my. Is there ever? (laughs) It feels like the general media landscape right now is super accelerated. So even before COVID, you had every legacy media company focusing on their OTT product, which in some ways competes with their traditional business model. Radio companies, which we're both very familiar with, are focused on podcasts. Again, some could say is competing a little bit. Talent are starting their own media companies, etc., Now we've added in this pandemic where consumption habits have changed. Everything is just going at light speed. The broad question here is, what's the most interesting media story that you've seen in the last six months? And how has all of this just changed in your mind? It's so hard to choose among the many options, but I'll point to a couple. I think the story around TikTok has been fascinating and People would say, well, that's sort of digitally native media, but you had Kevin Mayer coming in, the heir apparent at Disney. That's pretty traditional media for you. Grand opening, grand closing. Three months later, after some angry tweets from the president and a clear path towards divestment by the parent company. So that's fascinating. I think also just anecdotally, 
I'm a father of an 18 year old. And so I've spent some time on the platform and played around with it and just seeing how that platform is sort of taken off and inculcated and incubated a whole new group of creators and influencers who didn't exist before that platform came around. So I think that's an extraordinary story, both in terms of how it's already pushed and moved the culture. I mean, I see so much great content on that app regarding social justice, BLM, and just really moving the culture, the whole way in which TikTok influencers punked the Trump campaign Mm -hmm. for that ill-conceived rally that they wanted to do. All of those pieces. And then obviously, Kevin Mayer. I mean, boy, oh boy. Right. And then Microsoft and Oracle and now Walmart. And so that's fascinating to me. Yeah. We can stop there. But I mean, I think the other one I'd point to is this brewing war around Apple and the way that it treats developers inside of the App Store ecosystem. And I know a lot about that, as you know, from my history with not only iHeart, but particularly also with Pocket Casts and understanding how those economics impact companies, both large and small, seeing the guys from Basecamp go on the warpath. Recently now, just in the last few days, Facebook, Epic Games. It's been a steadily building hue and cry. And that's fascinating because for my adult life, Apple has always been on the other side of this, has been positioned as the good guy. And you're starting to see some cracks in that as people start to be much more honest and upfront about the difficulties that are associated with that app store tax. So I think that's fascinating. Yeah, you're right. Like Apple gave the opportunity for all of these developers to reach millions of people, right? And of course they took a tax on that. But now you have brands that are, I don't want to say bigger than the platform, but big enough and that the the tax hasn't changed. So that's why you see these folks standing up to them. Where do you think this ends? It's a great question. Apple has shown absolutely no interest in backing down at all. Right. You know, they have a case to be made. I'm not immune, nor do I dismiss out of hand the case that they've made around the build out of that ecosystem. And to be fair, their App Store review process is rigorous and completely different than what you see in the Google Play Store. And I think the App Store has benefited from that rigor and generally is an all-in-all better user experience. At the same time, Apple seems to not want to acknowledge the fact that there is a consumer impact because one way or the other, either the consumer has to pay more in terms of purchase price in-app for in-app purchase, or the developer takes a margin hit. And I think at a certain point, you're seeing such a build of upset and outrage that it will reach a critical mass. And my guess is at a certain point, Apple will have to make, even if it's just for for PR purposes, will have to make some kind of movement because I just feel like it's going to be very, very difficult given, you know, the array of folks who are speaking out on the issue right now. And just how big of names. It wasn't just a, oh, I can't believe they didn't approve our app or they didn't approve this new change where we highlight that taking 30% fee. It's all very calculated. And this is a full-blown war at this no, point. So you're right. I would actually say this one's probably going to be the most interesting to watch in my eyes. Over the and next I will tell months. you anecdotally, because as I mentioned earlier, we do have a strategy of delivering our content and curriculum through a variety of platforms. Mm-hmm. We're in this right now where we have a channels app, which is really designed to help our educators. It's a virtual good. Having to deal with the app store tax inside of the, the channels, is, is it come out of our hide? Does it come out of the instructor artist's hide? 
thinking about right. that is just as relevant for me today as it was at Pocket Casts or at iHeartRadio. On the content side, oh, I feel boy. like unpolished or lower production value has become almost a good thing for a lot of content. Some out of necessity, but some out of maybe being able to be a little more authentic without the layers of production or maybe the gatekeepers. A couple of examples, I think John Krasinski's mm. Some Good News on YouTube, how that took off. Uh, now Viacom CBS is the mm-hmm. owner of that. The other one, to go back to TikTok, Sarah She's Cooper, great. right? She's the breakout star, I think, of this entire thing. And now she has a deal with CBS for a TV show and a Netflix special. It's just really interesting to me to see, and you alluded to it already, of the great content that is on TikTok that is probably off anyone over, I don't know, 30, 35's radar until it becomes mainstream like Sarah's did. It signals that change again of you don't need all the bells and whistles to create something special. And a lot of the podcast industry is built off of that as no well, question. right? Do you think that that changes the video landscape and social media moving you know, forward? It already has to a certain degree because I think you could argue that Trevor Noah's really found his voice in quarantine. Yeah. And those videos are literally him pointing his phone at his face and then having these really impassioned, really well thought out, really from the heart missives that are three, four minutes long. And that's on TikTok. It's on other social media outlets as well. You know, he had a TV show with a heritage on Comedy Central And this has been an entirely new dimension from him. And I think a more urgent, authentic chapter for him. Do you call that a sign of things shifting? I I would argue, yes, he's not alone. But again, he already had a platform and he found a new voice with a new platform. And I think it's extended his reach enormously. It's certainly extended his influence among younger people. Without a doubt. And I think it was Obviously, before all of this, so it's not a credit to or a result of the circumstance. But Conan O'Brien, he's always been a big name. He had The Tonight Show, right? He's always had a platform. I'm definitely biased with audio and podcasts, but I feel like his podcast has really let him find the show he should have been doing all along. And it's obviously reaching millions of people. I don't know what his TV show reaches, but I'm guessing it's expanded his reach quite a bit. I'm offering an original idea here, but if you look at what audio without the video provides for and how it almost unshackles certain kinds of talent, there's a looseness, there's an ease, there's a comfort. And Conan is this tall, rangy guy, awkward, long-limbed. And that was part of his identity as a you know, visual presenter on late night show or as right. a stand-up or what have you. None of that matters when you're behind the mic sitting down with a group of people who really know you well. You know who also is long-limbed and somewhat awkward? A guy called Howard Stern. You know, there's <laughs> yeah. something about audio and, you know, radio showed us this first, that allows for this looseness, this, I hate to use the authenticity word, but it's true. You said it. I think that Conan's found that extra gear that maybe, you know, when you're having to hit your mark, when you're having to look into the camera, it's psychologically hard to let all that stuff go. It's much more of a performance because you have to perform for the camera. You can't pretend the camera's not there. You have to know it's there. You have to make sure that the TV product looks and feels right. And I love podcasting for that. I don't have to worry about what my eyes are doing. Close my eyes for that matter. And that to me is what makes the medium so special. And again, I'll use another well-worn, I promise I will not say intimate, 
But I will say, I will say <laughs> companionship. It keeps you company. And there's something about that looseness that allows you to let your guard down and really be present inside of the conversation. Yes, absolutely. And with all of this, it's a little bit of throwing out the playbook, which is always healthy. And everyone had to throw the for playbook sure. out, right? To a certain for sure, extent. For sure. I mean, look, I would be remiss because you know you haven't brought it up. You talked about content. We talked about the stories around platforms and technologies and, and so on. But boy, oh boy, I listened with such great interest to that extraordinary Joe Budden podcast yesterday on Spotify. Yeah. And I just found it just so compelling to hear his story. And what I would say about Joe Budden and the narrative that he wove was, what a time for him to be having this conversation about this piece of yeah. IP that he's built. You, know, you, you talk about everything that's happening in our country right now. It has a special resonance now. I think, and I hear it as a person who's enjoyed a ton of privilege, I hear it in a different way today than I might have heard it if this was another contract negotiation with a creative and a DSP or a major platform. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think that's a benefit to all of this because I'll fully admit I was always quick to rush to the, well, that's the contract they signed and they yep. got to deal with it. They got paid. They got, you know, whatever. It is different though now to look at. It's sort of like, I don't know if you followed it, but Barstool yes. Sports, they do their negotiations in public, which is <laughs> very interesting, at least for folks like us that have been in those negotiations, I think, to watch, because typically you don't talk about it. And maybe there's an article planted carefully somewhere, but not full on Twitter rants, right. right? And it's all around this IP ownership. And I get it, but you're also using the platform at the same time. It's not a clear cut decision either way, but I think Joe is presenting it in a different way that I haven't. Yeah. And before. I think that it's interesting because you brought up Barstool, that entire organization is coming from a very, very different place. Obviously, a different set of subject matter to a certain extent, but also, you know, Portnoy is famous for sort of sitting on the opposite side of the political spectrum than, say, a Joe Budden might. But this is sure. not exclusive to these big deals. I mean, you think about public radio, too, and Misha Youssef over in LA and, you know, those conversations about ownership. So, you know, public radio, which we think of as generally being pretty righteous, has had its own struggles in terms of who might own the IP and sure. the value of the creators and how they can continue to make a living post uh, those agreements ending and how to think about the right home for those shows and the IP uh, that sit underneath it. So I don't think this is about Spotify necessarily. I don't think this is about any one platform. It's about power. It's about power and influence. Yeah. It would be the same discussion no matter which platform it was on. And to that, the headlines are dominated by Spotify, SiriusXM, with now with numerous acquisitions. iHeart keeps launching new content. The New York Times are clearly invested in audio and creating more digital content. What about the independent guys? And, and your role at Pocket Cast, I think, gave you a very unique lens into the independent podcast space, which, quite frankly, I mean, that was the backbone of this industry up until even a few years ago. What's the outlook for the independent podcaster and independent platform in this world that seems to just be a constant land Yeah, it's grab? different, obviously, answers for independent creators versus independent platforms. Sure. I remain Pocket Cast's biggest fan. I'm still in close touch with my friends over there, and I am deeply proud of what we built. And I still am biased, but think it's just the best way to listen to podcasts, bar none, still to this day, and will likely be for some time to come. Mm -hmm. It is difficult 
to imagine going toe-to-toe with multinational, multi-billion dollar corporations for whom podcasting is a filigree. And that's not any easier than it was when we launched, but you've certainly seen greater consolidation in just that last two and a half years, maybe in ways that we didn't expect would happen so quickly. Obviously, Spotify has made the greatest number of investments to try to own the entire value chain, but they're not alone. Just in the last few weeks, we've heard news from Amazon and Audible, and certainly the SiriusXM acquisition of Stitcher, not just the app, but the content and the platform is very important news, and there's going to be more consolidation. So that obviously impacts platforms and creators. I remain really optimistic about the ability of dedicated, passionate, creative producers to find audiences because of the incredibly fragmented universe. Gatekeepers are going to become more and more important, but I don't think that changes the operating principle here, which is that if you don't love it and feel passionate about it, you shouldn't do it to start. This is not a get rich quick scheme. And that's no different today than it was in 2009 or in the post-serial age. This medium requires dedication and passion. I just saw the number of Joe Budden podcasts that he had done for Spotify. It's an enormous number, hundreds and hundreds (laughs) of them, right? And he already came with an audience. And so imagine what it takes. I don't think that's changed. I do worry, obviously, if you look at the top lists from each of the platforms, those lists often look a lot like what content that platform owns or what uh, exclusive licensing deal that platform has, because they have every incentive to promote and exalt the content that is going to move the mark for them. And that's not great, but that's what happens. One platform that has typically been agnostic to a certain degree anyway, Mm. Apple, they just recently made a big announcement with rebranding Beats One, their radio station, which to be completely honest, Beats One is Zane Lowe to me. I couldn't tell you if they had other personalities. It's just kind of been off my radar. And I think it's just more of a platform thing for me, right? But now they're Apple Radio. And they've launched more channels, format-specific. They launched a lot of new shows, some with former radio personalities, some with Mark Hoppus from Blink-182. Those shows are also going to be podcasts. So now we're starting to see that trek into Apple having original content. And I can start to see where is that real estate for promotion going to go. It's interesting to me that the radio side is taking the lead. I think they're seeing the connection that a personality, the companionship is, as you mentioned, versus just creating playlists like Spotify typically does that I think is their biggest competitor. It still, to me, feels like podcasts are secondary, but I don't imagine imagine that stays true for very long, given their dominance in the marketplace, but market share that's being lost. What's your take on all of this? Do you think that they're going to get serious about it? I find it absolutely fascinating that they made such a big bet on human-driven, human-hosted curation, as if they were saying, we repudiate the Spotify machine learning algorithmic, non-human, non-personality-driven vibe especially since Spotify has claimed up and down that they're coming after broadcast radio. They're coming after that audience. They're coming after that revenue. Spotify, with every step that they've made, think about the reach and the influence of Atuma Basa, who ran Rap Caviar. Yep. They let him go to YouTube, and they doubled down on Algo. They doubled down on personal 
recommendations, and they seem to have deprecated most of what seems to be the sort of community-oriented features that were in that platform years back. It almost feels like Apple is in response to that. And they're saying, no, we believe in community, we believe in companionship, we believe in human-hosted, human curation. And that's fascinating to me because, as you pointed out, they have hired people from radio, including some of our former colleagues, by the way, to host some of those stations, to program some of those stations. I also think it's interesting that they made it all Apple as opposed to Beats, which is a great brand and I think in some ways feels more brand relevant, although maybe confusing. Maybe they felt like it was a confusing brand. But it feels like those two are in not only competition, but in conversation with one another about the future of this medium. And by the way, radio still is out there and strong and plays an important role in all this as well. I just find it fascinating to see this. Now, what does it mean for their podcasting business? Well, I've often been interested as to why they haven't found a way to integrate that service more broadly, probably because they've always, as a rule, had Apple Music behind a paywall. And so those two things Mm -hmm. are tough. But what a better way of creating an acquisition funnel than to create some kind of combination of those two assets, putting podcasts in front of the paywall, and then maybe being able to matriculate people into an all-in-one service. I've always been really interested in decision-making around that. I understand that they're different teams, different products. I get that. But if Apple is doubling down on their services, which is what everybody seems to think they're doing, they're going to do a bundle, it would seem like this would be a great way for them to create some discipline and cohesion around their audio products. Yeah, definitely. And what a time to do it. Personally, like when they launched Beats 1, I thought that that was going to be the roadmap very quickly. Was wrong. But now, for the first time during all of this pandemic... Edison released that more people are consuming audio on digital devices versus more traditional linear like right. AM, FM. That could just be a symptom of different consumption habits during this and everything changes. I don't view that as a doom and gloom for AM, FM radio by any means. And especially the companies like iHeart, our former employer, they're so invested into digital that people are still listening to their morning shows. They're just listening to it on an app versus maybe the radio station. Or listening on demand with The Breakfast Club and Bobby Bones and several of those other properties for sure. Yeah, The short-term patterns are really simple. People weren't in their cars and commuting. So that's easy to explain. Long-term, I think there are some endemic issues around whether or not young people feel connected to broadcast radio, to FM radio. There's a lot Mm -hmm. of data out there that suggests that it doesn't quite have the same impact and pull that it did. And that's a question that's out of my wheelhouse right now. Obviously, there's some nod to that because every single one of the broadcast radio companies has gotten heavily involved in on-demand and podcasting has a very different complexion in the eyes of those younger demos. And so that might be a way to continue to push that business forward. But radio is not going to look the same in the next couple of years. That much is clear. There's going to have to be, I think, some hard thinking around what to do with those platforms and how to continue to make them relevant. I do think it's really smart that every one of these broadcasting groups has has both made the investment in terms of whether it's Stuff Media or Cadence 13 or, or what have you at all the different companies, but that they're using their own airwaves and their own promotional inventory to promote awareness and usage of a podcast. So I think that's great. That's smart. And they ought to do that. And they need to do that. 
Yeah, really, it boosted the entire podcast space. iHeart was the first to really use their airwaves in a meaningful way to produce podcasts. I mean, I promise you, you cannot listen to an iHeart radio station right now and not hear a commercial for one oh, of their podcasts or listening to a podcast. And some of those, to their credit, are not even iHeart radio owned podcasts necessarily. Those reach so many more people than the entire podcast space does. So the influence they've had and Entercom now and uh, CBS, uh, CBS. CBS Radio still a thing? CBS and Intercom are the same, yeah. <laughs> oh, it's the same thing, okay. Cumulus would be <laughs> the third one. track anymore. They've also made quite a few investments in the space. So all three of the big, exactly. big boys and others as well, even smaller, have made investments in podcasting. I think everybody has gotten on the boat. Yeah, and I think the same with the New York Times and NBC. All of these folks, as they get in, they're using their reach to bring more people in. So it's a net positive, even if at times it maybe feels like for the independent people, it's being drowned out a little bit. But I view it still as a You know, it's an interesting mirror image, in my opinion. iHeart, as you said, and I know you were very involved in the strategy around this, of promoting the entire medium and talking about podcasting and driving awareness and trial and usage. The flip side of this is Spotify buys the ringer. And then you've got Bill Simmons at the top of each one of his podcasts explaining to people not what podcasting is, but that you should listen to podcasts specifically on Spotify. That is like a mirror image. My fondness for radio is well-documented. In my mind, radio was doing the righteous thing. Tell a whole group of people who might not know about this great medium to try it. You promote the category, and then you worry about tactically what are you going to do to get people to listen to your shows. But you're promoting the category, and that benefits everyone. It benefits people who don't know about podcasts. It benefits podcasters. It might benefit podcasting apps. It benefits the entire ecosystem. Now, look at what Spotify does. Spotify says, we're going to spend a whole bunch of money to buy out Bill Simmons and The Ringer, Lock, Stock, and Barrel. Full disclosure, I love The Ringer. I love Bill Simmons' podcast. (laughs) I love Mal. I mean, I love this entire group of people. But at the same time, and again, it may be great business practice. The only company that that benefits, obviously, is Spotify. It's interesting to see it. It's not surprising. It's certainly not underhanded. It's all right out in the open. But radio has done more for the medium over the medium term. And I think what Spotify has done is just raise valuations in the medium, which is probably not a terrible thing for some creators, but it's a different calculus entirely. Yeah. When we were putting on the spots for podcasts for the first time, we promoted Apple Podcasts on iHeart Radio stations, which is completely against the rules. But that was the reality. We said we need to just direct people to, even if it's a competitor, because then we'll be able to expose them to our podcast. You know, they want to listen to The Breakfast Club, and we got to realize where they're at and be where they're at in the same way that all of these morning shows promote their YouTube channels or their social media handles. It's not different in my mind, and you hope that the long term you can move them back to your own and operate. Well, and platforms. I think you guys deserve a lot of credit because I was a GM of digital at the time, and I wasn't crazy about the fact that you guys were sending people off of iHeart, but I understood <laughs> it, and we were able to have conversations and get to a place where it made sense for us. I don't think that's the case at a lot of these other companies. To be fair, I think iHeart has always thought about promoting radio as a medium and podcasting as a medium rather than just iHeart, although we certainly did a lot of promotion just of iHeart, didn't we? No shame. <laughs> no shame. Hey, it worked. It worked. No shame. Absolutely. Well, Owen, this has been great. I think this is by far the longest interview we've had on Kinsider, and I feel like I could keep going just anytime I get to talk shop with you. It's always oh, this fun. is great. We could go for another few days as long as we can, you know, build in a couple lunch breaks. But it's such a pleasure, Chris. <laughs> it's great chatting with you, and I'm here anytime you want to talk. Absolutely. One last question for you. I know you're a big hockey fan. 
who's going to win it this year? Wow. That's a great question. Obviously, it hurts me to say that the Islanders look pretty good. I don't know that they can come out of the East. As a Rangers fan, it always hurts my heart to tip my cap to the Islanders. (laughs) I think that Vancouver might be a sleeper. I feel like they have an interesting combination of grizzled vets and some kids. And I'll tell you, Vegas looks super strong. Yeah. Well, I've got ride or die for my Tampa Bay Lightning. I'll take a cup in a weird year. <laughs> Just the same. So uh, well, good we'll luck see. to your Lightning. I always thought of them as the Rangers South. So uh, I know they don't have quite as. Yeah, we exactly, take all the players. We don't have quite guys. as many. And, and I hope that Ryan McDonough obviously gets better soon. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Thanks, um, thank Chris, you so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Kinsider. If you like this episode, please hit subscribe or follow wherever you're listening to podcasts. If there's an option to leave a review, that'd be great. For Kindred Media, I'm Chris Peterson. Talk to you next time.